Well, good morning, Harborside family. Isn't that a beautiful place? A beautiful chapel. A wonderful. You know, God is really pleased with what you are doing here with this wedding chapel. He is going to bless that abundantly. Well, it was a cold and icy night on January the 10th of 1854. And in Bellevue Hospital in New York, there was an admission that night. It was a standard admission, and no one really paid a whole lot of attention to it. They brought in an individual who had come from the Bowery. Now, although the Bowery has been kind of cleaned up in the last 20 years or so, in the mid-1800s, the Bowery was a place that was known for filth and disease and all kinds of illegal activity. It was a place where people kind of went right before they went to the morgue. It was just kind of one of those places that you had heard about, but you never really wanted to go there. And so the nurses looked at this individual and said, well, here's another one. We've seen hundreds before, and we'll probably see hundreds more after him. Just a bum from the Bowery. When the paramedics brought him in, they told the story that this individual, who was obviously very inebriated and still inebriated when he got to the hospital, had gotten up in the night, had fallen and hit the wash basin. And when he did so, he was bruised in his forehead and his arms. But the more serious thing was there was a, a, cash, a gash across his throat. And so as they looked at him, they tried to decide what to do, but nobody really cared. I mean, he's just a bum from the Bowery. They didn't even know who he was. And so they sewed up his throat with black thread. I mean, why waste sutures on somebody you don't even know from the Bowery? They searched his materials or his clothes to see what he had there, and they came up with two items, 38 cents and a little slip of paper. And the slip of paper had five words on it. Dear friends... And gentle hearts. Kind of an unusual piece of paper to be carrying around from a bum from the Bowery, isn't it? No one really knew and no one really cared. He languished there in the hospital for three days. He got a high fever and he eventually died from that fever and from the complications of his throat injury. They didn't know who he was, so they put a tag on his toe and sent him to the morgue and it just simply said, unknown. The next day, one of his friends came to the hospital looking for him, and they directed him to the morgue and said, we think this might be the person. Would you go down there and identify them? And when he went down to identify them, he found this individual. His name is Stephen Foster. Perhaps you have heard of him. He was probably the most prolific songwriter of the 19th century. He wrote over 200 songs including such uh, hits as Oh Susanna, Jeannie with the Light Brown Hair, Camp Town Races, and probably his favorite, My Old Kentucky Home. He was 38 years old. He was a shell of a man. It looked as if he had done those things which had caused the self-destruction of his life. Such a shame that this genius wound up in the Bowery and wound up as an unknown person in the morgue. But nobody cared. Is it possible that his fate may have been changed if someone had come to him and said, Stephen, do you realize somebody does care about you? Do you realize not only does somebody care about you, somebody loves you. They have a plan for your life. It's not a plan to self-destruct. It is a plan to use your genius so that the people of the world can sing your songs. It is a plan to be in fellowship with him. There might be some of you here today 
And you might be thinking those same kind of questions. Does anybody really care about me? Does anybody love me? And you may have come in this morning really uncertain, not only about the people around you, but about God himself. Does God really love me? But regardless of how you feel about yourself, or regardless of how others feel about you, here is the person who matters. It's what God thinks about you. We're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to begin our journey in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 16 through 19. So if you have your phones, you can follow along. I don't say Bibles anymore. (laughs) And here it is. The Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws, carefully observe them with all of your heart and with all of your soul. You have declared this day that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in obedience to him. That you will keep his decrees, commands, and laws, that you will listen to him. And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession as he promised, and that you are to keep all his commands. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame, and honor high above all the nations he has made and that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God as he has promised. When we look at this section of scripture, it is almost like a contract. It's this is what he's asking us to do and this is what God says he will do for us. In verse 17, he says to us, this is what I want you to do. I want you to proclaim that the Lord is your God. I want you to walk in his ways, and I want you to be obedient in all the commands that I've given unto you. That's our responsibility. But God's responsibility is in verses 18 and 19, and he says, if you will do that, here's what I have for you. You are my people. You are my treasured possession. And then he says, if you will walk in my ways, if you will keep my commandments, I will set you apart as a people that are holy unto God. It is a fantastic contract. Anytime that we have a contract, there's always that little bit of, is the other person going to fulfill their side of the deal or am I going to be left out in the cold? But when there is a covenant contract with the Lord, we know for certain that he is going to do exactly what he promised. It is a done deal. If he says this is the way it is, we know for certain that is exactly the way it is and it will not change. The only variable in this is whether or not we will keep our responsibility. Whether we will declare that the Lord is our God. Where we will walk in his ways. Where we will obedient, be obedient to his commands. Anytime that we look at scripture, in order to fully understand it and fully make sure that we're hearing exactly what God is saying, there's three steps or there's three levels of interpretation of scripture. It begins when we try to figure out and try to find out Exactly who were the original hearers and what did this mean to the original hearers of these words? When we look at Deuteronomy, we know that the original hearers of this were the nation of Israel. He's talking about them as a nation, as a people. And he's saying to them, if you will keep my commands, I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to bring praise to you because I have chosen you to carry forth the hope and redemption of the world and to tell the people around about you who I am. That's the original hearers of this. But then there is a second step or a second level of interpretation of Scripture, and that is this. 
what are the timeless principles or truth that can be brought through time and can be applicable not just to the nation of Israel, but can be applicable to all people at all the times. And as we look at this, we know that from that nation of Israel, Abraham was given a straight promise. And that promise to Abraham was this. Through your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so he says to Abraham, there will be an individual who will come who will be a redeemer. Now, we obviously know from reading the New Testament that that seed, of course, was Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that through him, all the nations of the world can be blessed. So, we look at the original hearers. We look at the timeless truths that can be brought through time to apply. But the third level of interpretation is the most important. And that level of interpretation is this. What does this mean to me on March the 6th, 2016? How does this scripture apply to my life? Does this have meaning for me? Or was it only meant for the people of Israel back so many centuries ago? To find the answer to that, we look at the New Testament in Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 through 10, we find these verses. Now, earlier in this chapter, the author has said that the stone is Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, when we talk about the stone in these verses, he is referring to Jesus the Christ. And he says this, Now to you who believe... Now, in the Old Testament, he was talking about the nation of Israel. Now he comes forth and says, now to those of you who believe. Then he digresses a little bit, and he talks about what happens if we don't believe. To you who believe, this stone is precious. That's Jesus. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. When we reject Jesus, this is the lot that we have. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, now who's he talking about? You who believe, back to verse 7. You who believe, all of you who believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, this is you. This is what God thinks about you. This is what he says about you. But you are a chosen people. A royal priesthood, which means that we can go directly to God without any intercessor. You are a holy nation, not a nation that is defined by geographical boundaries, but a spiritual nation without boundaries. You are God's special possession. Why are we at? That you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You see, that passage in Deuteronomy can be brought through time And through Jesus Christ, as we look at him and as we obey him and walk in his ways and declare that he is our God, he says to us now, you can have all of those promises that I gave back to that nation of Israel. You can have all of those promises that I gave to anyone who would bless the name of Jesus. So what does it mean to be a treasured possession? Well, in our society, we have a tendency to value things according to three different characteristics, either beauty or expense or how expensive it is or how much it costs or its rarity. This is society and this is how they view something that is a treasured possession. Let's begin with beauty. As you can see on the overhead, this is not a personality contest. 
This is a beauty contest. And we know that from experience that those individuals who are attractive, both male and female, those who are considered attractive, have many more opportunities than those who are not. Now, being on the side of those who are not, I think that is a terrible idea. <laughs> but life isn't fair, is it? We have to go on. And we even find in children's literature that beauty is valued highly. Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, they were asleep and got their, got their husbands. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't because they, they had a great personality. And so we value beauty in our society. Another thing that we value in society is something that is very costly or expensive. A few years ago, we were able to go over to Russia and I went over to Moscow. And when we were in Moscow, we went to the Kremlin Museum. And when we were in the Kremlin Museum, there were many, many artifacts there, priceless, beautiful artifacts of paintings and all different kinds of things from the history of the Russian people. And one of the things that particularly struck me, because I'd never seen one before, was a Fabergé egg. And here's an example of it on the overhead for you. These Fabergé eggs were commissioned by a czar in the late 1800s to give to his wife as a gift for Easter. Now, these aren't chocolate eggs. <laughs> these are pretty expensive stuff. And they were very valuable. They were so valuable that obviously you couldn't touch them. They were behind a screen uh, glass door and they were totally locked off. But it was a very valuable possession. And we know that because things are very costly and expensive, our society values them. There's a third thing that people in our society value, and that is something that is rare. Now, you'll see on the overhead before you, this is a baseball card of all things. This card was printed in 1909 by a guy, or the guy who's pictured here, his name is Hannes Wagner. Now, I'm sure that most of you in this room have never heard of Hannes Wagner. I don't think many of you were around in 1909 to see this, but this is Hannes Wagner, and he was a star of his day. This was put out by the American Tobacco Company. But the problem was, Hannes Wagner was a non-smoker. Hannes Wagner did not want his name associated with, or excuse me, with uh, smoking and cigarettes and so forth. And so he went to the company and he said, I'm either going to bring suit against you or you have to pull my cards out because I am not going to allow you to put my images out in your cigarette packs. And so they did so. And so rather than thousands and thousands of cards being printed... All of them were recalled, and there were really only about 200 that were left, and now today only about 50 that are in existence. Now, because of this card being so rare, in 1991, the hockey player, Wayne Gretzky, you won't believe this, bought this card for $450,000. But the rest of the story is this. In 2000, that card was resold for $1.2 million. And in 2007, it resold again for $2.8 million. Are you kidding me? <laughs> this is a piece of cardboard with the guy's picture on it. Some people just have too much money in this world, don't you think? But they valued it because it was so rare. However, God doesn't value things because of their beauty or because of the price tag on them or because of their rarity. 
God has a different method of valuing things. He says, you are valuable. You are my precious possession. You are my treasure to God. You are a treasure to God simply because he created you and he designed you for fellowship with him. There is a guy named C.S. Lewis who was a theologian, and he makes this statement for us. He says, God, who needs nothing, loves into existence creatures, that's us, in order that he may love and perfect them. God says, you are my treasured possession just simply because I have created you and I love you. Have you ever felt like you were just a number? Insignificant? Well, if you've ever tried to contact a government agency with a complaint, <laughs> you know exactly what I mean. <laughs> After about six times of choosing one or three or four, the last one always is, Go back to the main menu and start over. Because you still haven't got anybody to talk to. But here's the good thing. God never considers you just a number. One of the things that I've been impressed with Harborside Church, and Carol and I, my wife and I, have only been here about a year or so. This staff, this pastor, they consider you as persons, not numbers. And when I came here, the old biblical saying is true. I was a stranger and you took me in. Those individuals just love me and they love you. And when they look at you, they see people. They see relationships. They don't see a number. And there's a lot of people here. That doesn't mean you're a number. It means that you are precious in the sight of God. And the people in this congregation care about you. You ever feel invisible? As if somehow you're just walking around and nobody cares about you. Nobody knows who you are. Nobody knows your name. One of the great miracles of life is that God in his majesty, in his omnipotence, knows every single one of you. He pays attention to you, and there will never be a time when he is not concerned about you. Look with me at Numbers chapter 6 and verses 24 to 26. This is what God thinks about you. He says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Now let's move that through time. And let's apply it to ourselves today. What does this mean to us? I'm going to read it again. And I'm going to ask you to read it silently. And I want you to put your name in every place where it says you. Because this is personal. And God looks at you individually. He cares about you individually. He is concerned about you individually. And he says to us, The Lord bless Tom and keep Tom. The Lord make his face to shine upon Tom and be gracious to Tom. The Lord turn his face toward Tom and give Tom peace. It's personal. That's what God thinks about you. It says God turns his face toward you. Have you ever been talking to someone and while you're talking to them, they go like this or, you know, around? You know they're not paying attention to you, right? You know they really don't care about what you're trying to say. Just imagine if you can, God, the God of the universe, turns his face towards you and looks at you and smiles. That is my beloved son or daughter 
That is my treasured possession. Any of you guys know Ray Alger? He's the chairman of the board here. Ray was in the first service. The first time that I ever met Ray, he looked at me and introduced himself to me, and the love of Christ just oozed out of his body and just reached out and grabbed me. And whether it's the first-time visitor or whether he has known you for 30 years, every time I look at Ray Alger, he turns his face toward me and he smiles at me, and I know this guy cares about who I am and what's happening in my life. Well, in a much greater and deeper way, God looks at you, and he turns his face toward you says, that's my child. That's the one I love. That's my treasured possession. Not only does he turn his face towards you, it says he makes his face to shine upon you. Have you ever been in a situation where your loved one, whether it is your wife or husband or child or someone else that you love, has been gone for a period of time? And when they come back and you see them walking in, what happens to you? A big smile broadens your face. Your eyes light up and you say, ah, this is my beloved. This is the one I care about. I am so glad to see you. This is somebody I love. That's exactly what God does for you individually. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. That's how much he loves you and cares for you. He adores you. He wants to meet with you. He wants to talk with you. He wants to listen to you. He wants to guide you. He wants to be there for you in good times and bad times. He loves you. God's love is not concerned about beauty or rarity or cost. God loves you. It is centered on relationships. Even despite the raggedness of the one who is loved. We don't have to be perfect to be loved. We just have to be ourselves. When God was walking through the earth as Jesus the Christ, he often looked upon people whose society would say, "Ah, nobody cares about them. Just like nobody cared about Stephen Foster. We don't care about them. But he looked at an individual who was a leper and he turned his face toward them and had his face to shine upon them. And met their need. He looked at an individual who was a woman who had been caught in all kinds of issues of immorality. And said, you can be different. He looked at an individual who was a blind beggar. And said, do you want to be helped? And he turned his face toward them. Allowed it to shine upon them. And made a difference in their life. He looked at a tax collector. And turned his face toward him. And said, you don't have to live like this. You can be different. Because I love you. I care about your life. I want to help you. You see, he doesn't care about what your beauty is or your position or your power or your influence or your religious background. You may be unlovely, but you will never be unloved because God cares about you. He knows all about our raggedness and he still reaches out and turns his face toward us. And smiles at us. There might be some of you here today who have come into this sanctuary and you are thinking, nobody cares about me. Just a number. I'm not even sure God loves me. Maybe it's because you grew up in a home where love was almost non existent or primarily missing. 
might even have been an abusive situation emotionally or even physically. And you said, if that's what my father's like, I don't want anything to do with him. Some of you may have had some issues that have happened to you earlier in your life and you've committed some sins that you think, oh my goodness, God could never love me. After what I have done, and you enumerate those things, God could never love me. Well, I would turn to the Apostle Paul and say, I don't believe you. God is a gracious and loving and forgiving God. You may have come into this sanctuary today and say, you know, I don't feel worthy to be loved by God. I'm so ragged in who I am. Why would God love me? I'm going to ask a favor of you right now. I'm going to ask if you would just bow your heads. And I want to pray for those of you. Because I don't want you to ever leave this building today without knowing how much God loves you. And if you have come into this sanctuary today and you're uncertain about God, I want you to know how much He loves you. Let me pray for you. Dear God, our Father, as we bow our heads and quiet our hearts for just a moment, may every individual in this sanctuary be aware of your great, gracious, and unconditional love for them. May we be awakened to the power of your love. May we receive your love. May we acknowledge that you are the Lord, our God. Give our hearts an understanding of how much you love us. Amen. So what does God think of you? Well, in Deuteronomy, he says... You are my treasured possession. Then we look at Psalm 17, 8, and it says this. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Did you know that you were the apple of God's eye? That he knows your name and he turns his face towards you and smiles towards you? Did you know that God says to you and John that you are a child of God? And we sang about that a little earlier today. Did you know that he thinks you are the height of his creation? And look at Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17. Now, I'm glad we're putting this on the overhead because otherwise it would take you 10 minutes to find where Zephaniah was in the Bible. It's, it's back in the clean section of the Bible where the pages kind of stick together when you turn them. In Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17, it says this. The Lord your God, and put your name here, is with me. The mighty warrior who saves he will take great delight, and put your name here, in his love. He will no longer rebuke you, but rejoice over you with singing. Now, I don't know exactly how God sings, but it has to be better than, than my singing and yours as well. But God sings over us because he loves us. You're the apple of his eye. You're the height of his creation. You know, we sang a song a little bit earlier in the service today that says, now that I know what God thinks of me, I will in faith receive that which he has said. Now that I know how much God loves me, I am opening my heart to receive what he has in me. The reason it is so important to know how much you are loved, because unless you understand that, and unless you know how much you are loved, if you don't feel loved by God, your life is going to be out of sorts. It's going to be confused. And your self-esteem will be out of balance. You will either think too highly of yourself or you will think too low of yourself. But when you recognize how precious you are in the sight of God, it balances us out and it gives us the opportunity to say, God, what do you want me to do for you? Remember Deuteronomy? 
God says, this is all the things I'm going to do for you. And here's what I'm asking you to do. Make the Lord your God. Walk in His ways. Be obedient to His commands and statutes. But once we understand how much God loves us and the sacrifice that He has made for us and the treasure He considers us, we are to respond to that love by making Him our Lord, by walking in His ways, and by being obedient into His pathways. Now, God doesn't do this because He's trying to get us. He asks us to do these things because He knows this is best for us. When we make the Lord our God, when we walk in His ways, when we are obedient to Him, it maximizes our time while we're here on earth. It maximizes our joy. It maximizes our relationship, not only with Him, but with those around about us. And that's what He wants for your life. In John 10.10, He says, I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. If we see Christianity as simply a life insurance policy, that we have to receive Christ to go to heaven, that's true. But if we see that's the end of it, we miss the abundant life that God has for each and every one of us. That's the beginning point. He loves us. He cares for us. He's he's forgiven all of our sins. He has guided us in the day and he has promised us a future of heaven. But now he says, I want you to do something. I want you to make me your God. I want you to walk in my pathways and I want you to be obedient to me. Many times in scripture, we are challenged. Walk with God. What exactly does that mean, walk with God? We know God's not going to come down physically in the flesh and we're going to walk with him. But when we walk with God, it is a sense of community with him. When we're walking with God, not running, when we're walking with God, we have the ability to communicate with him. We have the ability to listen to him. We have the ability to say, God, what are you doing in my life? I want to get in on it. You know, Pastor Kurt just a few moments ago talked about this wedding chapel. That's what God is doing in the life of this congregation. And he is offering you the privilege and opportunity to be a part of it. He says, come on, let's do this together. That's walking with God. God, uh, what's happening today? How can I be part of your family today? What can I do to bring you praise, honor, and glory today? That's walking with God. It is inconsistent for us as believers to accept all of the benefits and the blessings and the blessings of God and then say, hey, uh, you know, I'm not going to walk with you. I'm not going to be obedient to you. From the time that he was 14 years old, Marcus Luttrell wanted to be a Navy SEAL. In 2001, that particular goal came to pass as he passed the requirements to be a Navy SEAL. This is his picture. I don't know how much you know about being a Navy SEAL, but it's certainly one of the most rigorous, if not the most rigorous, test of anyone that could ever do to be accepted. Most of the individuals who are involved in the SEAL program don't make it. It is a very severe test over a long period of time. Marcus Luttrell made it. On June the 25th in 2005, Marcus Luttrell and three of his friends and buddies from SEAL Team 10 were in eastern Afghanistan. They were given the assignment of going out and finding a Taliban leader who had been particularly vicious in terrorizing local communities and had been murdering uh, individuals that are innocent people in that area. And they were given the assignment, find this Taliban leader and either capture him or kill him. As they were going out on patrol that day in their camouflaged uniforms, they happened to come upon 
a series of goat herders, and they had a decision to make. What are we going to do with these people? Because if we let these goat herders go, they have seen us. They know who we are, obviously, by the way we're dressed in Americans. They are liable to go tell the Taliban leaders where we are, and it could imperil our life. But on the other hand, should we kill them? Because if we kill them, they're just innocent people. They haven't done anything wrong. They just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so after a period of discussion, they decided they were going to take their chances and they were going to let them go. And so they did. But sure enough, within one hour, the Taliban had discovered their location and came in with heavy bombardment with all kinds of artillery and attacking these four SEALs. To shorten the story down, three of those four SEALs were killed. Marcus Luttrell was the only survivor. His story is told in a book called Lone Survivor and later became a movie. He was the only one that was able to survive this barrage, but he did not survive unscathed. He had shrapnel all over his body, and he had fallen off the cliff in an attempt to get away and broken his back. And after the Taliban had left, he decided, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this mess? I can't walk. And so he picked up a stone, and he reached as far out in front of him as he could, and he drew a line in the dirt. And he said, if my feet can make it to that line, and I'm still alive, I'm going to do it again. And so he crawled on his stomach toward that line. His feet made it. He kept the stone and reached out and did it again and again and again. And he kept going. He did this on his stomach for three days. It took seven miles of crawling over three days to finally reach a settlement where they took him in and harbored him until the American forces could come and rescue him. He was given all kinds of awards for that. Some of you may have seen the movie about the lone survivor. But Marcus Luttrell said this at the end of that journey. He said, I will never quit. My nation expects me to be physically harder and mentally stronger than my enemies. If knocked down, I will get back up every time. I will draw on every remaining ounce of strength to protect my teammates and to accomplish our mission. I am never out of the fight. And while we highly regard people like Marcus Luttrell, who had such a loyalty to his nation and to his friends and to those who were fellow soldiers with him, is highly remarkable. He should be decorated. Think of this in a spiritual sense. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities against satanic influences on our life. And when you know how much God loves you, this is our response to God. I will not quit. I will not give up my faith. My God expects me to be spiritually stronger than my enemies. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. If knocked down, and you will be, I'm going to get back up. I'll draw on every remaining ounce of strength to protect my family members in the body of Christ and to accomplish the mission that God has given me, I am never out of the fight. That's what it means to walk in obedience unto the Lord. We are in a fight for our lives. It's not easy. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord.
going to ask our prayer partners to come forward at this time. If you have a prayer need of any kind, these are spiritual people. They love you. They'll turn their face toward you. Their face will shine upon you. And they will meet any need that you have by taking it to prayer before the Lord. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May you receive the love of Christ in your life. And may you go forth in victory knowing that we are more than conquerors through him who has bought us with a price. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.